Welcome to Wherever You Go, There You Are. In this podcast, we will discuss addiction, recovery, and thriving on the other side. If you are sober curious, in recovery, or someone affected by another person's addiction, this podcast is for you. Each week, we will speak with someone in recovery or affected by addiction, or an expert in the recovery space. I am your host, Vanessa Wellstead. I hope that by sharing our stories, you feel less alone and more a part of. Welcome back to Wherever You Go, There You Are. In today's episode, we will hear Wit's story. Wit celebrates eight years of sobriety in April and takes us with him on his journey to recovery. You will listen to an unabridged 20-minute qualification. Part of the mission of this podcast is to introduce listeners to a 12-step format and recovery vocabulary. As a host, I am intentionally not interrupting Wit as he shares his experience, strength, and hope. After he shares, we will continue to talk for 20 minutes about recovery and his program. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Well, welcome everyone. I am super excited to introduce you all to it. I think you have quite a exciting journey ahead of you in the next 30 to 40 minutes with us here. I was introduced to wit through my sister and friends in Los Angeles years ago, and I recall hearing the news of a guy who might have needed this <laughs> sobriety, this program, um, and I've watched his journey through social media over the years, and when I'm just so grateful for you being willing to come on and share your experience, strength, and hope. Tell us a little bit about what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. And um, yeah, just really excited to have you here today. You have such a powerful message. Thanks. It's uh, it's really cool to be here. I I realized as you were introducing me, um, and it's just a crazy coincidence that February first was my last day drinking. Wow. Um, so tomorrow would be my original sobriety date. Um, but we can we can get to that later. Um, wow, what a god yeah. shot. Yeah, no, it's uh, synchronicity, man. It, it's it's can be it can be really fun. Um, I how to start? Okay, so I feel like everyone starts their story talking about how they never felt, you know, part of something. They always felt different. Everyone kind of I don't know that they, they always found a separation between them and the world. And I think I mean. People in recovery will say that a lot, but I think it's something that just humans feel a lot. Um, but I definitely did. Um, I grew up in Chicago till I was nine, and then we moved to Charlotte, North Carolina. And I feel like when I made that transition was like the first time that I really felt different and apart. And, you know, going from a Chicago public school to a North Carolina private school, like it was just a really rough transition for me. Um, and it was kind of the first time where like I had trouble making friends and I, I didn't, you know, I just didn't, I just didn't feel a part of things. Um, and I would say in looking back, it was kind of the first time where I felt, um, that I needed something to be 
a shield in between me and the feelings that I was feeling. And for me, like to begin with that, it was always, it was always books. I was a big reader of fantasy fiction and things like that. And I read, I would say addictively, you know, I, it's a pretty great addiction to have. You improves your vocabulary and you, you, know, you start doing well in school. But like, I, and looking back, I realized that like, even from an early age, I needed when life got hard, when I didn't understand how things were being thrown at me and how life wasn't unfolding in the way that I wanted, that I needed sort of a layer of comfort in between me and those feelings. Um, and that, you know, that was a theme that eventually led to some really, you know, toxic behaviors with drugs and alcohol. Um, I'll, I'll skip ahead. Um, you know, I drank a lot. You know, I, I, I was a pretty normal drinker in high school and college just to say I drank a lot, but it wasn't, it didn't get in the way of anything. Um, you know, I did well in school. I was a really good athlete. I played uh, number one in, in the tennis team at Davidson College and, and um, you know, always did okay with stuff um, until uh, my senior year, I got introduced to Adderall, um, which is a part of my story. And so that, I would say that drug was something that kind of started me on the road to just behaviors around drinking and drugs. It wasn't, it was a little less standard. Um, uh, I, I continued using Adderall, you know, and it was something where that I used to, and I was prescribed it, um, which isn't hard to get, um, you know, and I used it to try and get things done. Like I, I graduated school and all of a sudden I was like thrown out into the world and I'm like, okay, how do I do lifing? And I had no idea. You know what I mean? I had structure in school and in, in high school and my parents, and then you're kind of cast out there and you're like, okay, what do I do now? And I had no idea. I would tell everyone I knew because I was like this really smart guy that, you know, had to show that I knew what was going on, but I truly had no idea. Um, and so, at, you know, Adderall was something that I used to like, you know, you get really, um, you get really focused. And so like, I could just finish things and, and whatever, but like, it became a crutch for me. And, and it's sort of, I think it's sort of set some, some addictive patterns for me. Cause when I didn't have it, I kind of lost it. Um, but I really didn't have a huge problem with drinking and drinking is like what really was the, the most um, difficult substance for me. And it didn't happen until I started just losing more in my life um, than I was prepared to lose. Um, I was dating this girl who I was in love with. I was living with two of my best friends in LA up in Laurel Canyon and, um, and things were great and I was super happy. And uh, then the girl had to leave to go to school in London. And in short order, my two buddies who had fallen in love were moved out and, and um, with the women they were soon to marry. Um, and I just kind of felt I mean, truthfully, I felt abandoned. Like they didn't abandon me. They went and lived their life, but that's just how it felt. And I just, I found myself in a situation where the feelings that I was feeling, I couldn't, I didn't have the, the I wasn't able to cope with it. I didn't have the coping mechanisms for it. So I really started drinking um, to take the pain away. Like that's really what it boils down to in the end is that I just, I just didn't have the emotional tools to deal with it. And so the drinking started getting more and more. Uh, life started getting a little worse all the time. Work was more difficult, you know. Um, 
and it didn't help because I started drinking at work. Um, and slowly, uh, it just, the drinking started edging forward until we got to the point where like I was, you know, I'd find myself hungovers and I found that drinking in the morning would help with that. And then once you kind of get on that road, uh, there's no excuse not to drink all day, you know, even at work. And I was pretty good at like hiding it from a lot of people. Um, you know, I mean, I would get new jobs and people just thought I was kind of incompetent. They didn't think I was like, you know, drunk all the time. Um, and so that descended to the point where I was drinking literally every waking moment to where, you know, I'd wake up in the morning and uh, my hands would be trembling. I'd be sweating. And, you know, it was by, like, e- like even in my sleep, I, because I couldn't drink when I was sleeping, like I would start to go into withdrawals and um, started throwing up in the morning and things like that. And, um, and, and uh, yeah, I just, I, I just remember I would just lay in bed all day and I would just try and keep drinking to pass out um, because just being awake and knowing that I couldn't beat this alcohol thing and knowing that I couldn't, you know, I just couldn't break the pattern of the life that I was in. I was just lay there and just keep trying to pass out. Um, and I knew in my heart that this was the rest of my life. Like that, like there was no, I, you know, I'm, I've always been a really strong-willed person, but like I've never, I knew in my heart that I could not break it. I knew I could not break this cycle because I was trying, I was terrified. And, um, and luckily, uh, you know, whoever you want to blame for it, my higher power or whatever had other plans for me. And I started getting some really bad health problems. Um, my stomach started hurting or what I thought was my stomach. Um, one of my best friends and neighbors, uh, she came over and was like taking me to the free clinic cause I didn't have health insurance. And they're like, well, maybe you should think about stop stopping drinking. And I was like, that's not what it is. That's not what these health problems are from. It's probably gluten intolerance or, you know, something else like, you know, I just knew I wasn't drinking was not stopping drinking was not an option. So we had to figure out something else. But the pain got bad enough to where I called my friend Meredith. And I was like, this has gotten to be critical. I was just laying in the fetal position in bed all day. It felt like there was like battery acid running throughout my entire body. And uh, I'm like, we need to go to the hospital. And uh and I talked to my dad and I talked to my brother and I talked to my mom and I'm like, listen, this drinking thing has gotten out of hand. And I, I remember specifically calling my dad and sobbing. I'm like, listen, I'm going to the hospital. I don't have health insurance. I'm sorry. Like this is happening. So we go to the, the uh, emergency room at Cedar sinai which luckily I was close to the hospital. And, um, and they, by that point I could barely walk. And they're like, <laughs> they're like, um, I just just was sitting there and was the most afraid I've ever been. And they eventually see me and I'm like panicking. I'm like, why aren't they seeing me? Why aren't they seeing me? I was in so much pain. And, um, the, I just, I, I started seeing a doctor. They had me like pee in a thing and it was not the right color. And I'm like, just give me a shot for this pain. Please just give me a shot. Like that's all, you know, and they did. And I, it was the same, you know, it's so funny is the, 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 the feel of that shot was the same feeling I got from like that first drink in the morning was, was just like this release, just like I could relax. Like, you know, um, I can, I can deal with the world for at least a minute. And I fell asleep on a gurney. And the last thing I remember is them wheeling me away 
And uh, I kind of just remember passing out. And then when I woke up again, my dad was there and my brother was there, which was confusing because my dad lives in Mexico and my brother lives in New York. And how did you guys get here so quick? I must have been out for a couple of days. Um, but it wasn't a couple of days. Uh, it had been three weeks and I, uh, you know, my withdrawals had been so bad that they had to induce a coma. So over that course of time, you know, I had a bunch of really close brushes with death. Um, you know, uh, they had to, I mean, there's a lot of details of it that were pretty bad, but over the course of that period, I lost probably about 50, 60 pounds because I was tube fed for three weeks, didn't eat anything. Um, and I'd lost, you know, I'd lost the ability to speak. I had lost the ability to walk. I had lost the ability to eat food and I had lost the ability to drink water. So they, my, my family was there, but I couldn't talk to them and I couldn't, you know, they would give me a pad of paper to write to them. And I only had enough strength to get a couple letters and then my hand would fail me. So eventually they had to like give me a chart and I would point to what I wanted. And it was, it was awful. And I looked awful. I looked like I, you know, Holocaust victim. It was, it was really, really bad. Um, And the one story I like to tell about that is that, so the only thing I could consume at that point was ice chips, because if I drank water, it could have gotten into my lungs and I could have drowned. So they'd give me ice chips and like, um, but they would never give me as much as I wanted. Even, even in that, like I still had addictive tendencies. So I would manipulate the nurses and try and get extra ice chips and lie to them and tell them I needed more than they were willing to give me, even at the cost of my health. Um, so I don't know. I think there's some foreshadowing in that. So I left the hospital and they were like, you know, um, if you drink again, you're going to die. <laughs> like that was the official medical opinion, which was pretty, I mean, there's plenty of evidence to back that up. And I was like, okay, cool. But, you know, I survived and I was like, great. Like, this is a new chapter. Like, you know, I, I wasn't craving alcohol at that point. And, um, and, you know, I had some friends take me aside for a second. They're like, Hey, what do you think about doing, you know, some sort of program? And I was like, no, that's not what I need. I was just depressed. Like I'm, you know, I'm cool. And I went down and started recovering with my dad and learned how to walk again. And we start, my body started learning to digest food again, which was really hard. Um, and after a while I came back to the States and it was like, I was ready to like, you know, have this really inspirational comeback story. And, but I didn't get any help for uh, what got me there in the first place. I didn't do therapy. I didn't do AA. I didn't do any of those sort of things. So like I was able to stay sober for about, a year and a half without any, any help. I mean, because the, the sword hanging over me was so insane, but, um, but then, you know, I ran into another situation in life again, that I was not emotionally prepared to handle. Um, my mom was, had been acting really weird. Um, I mean, she was an odd fun woman, but like stuff started happening where we were like, okay, things, something's wrong. And so she was diagnosed with, uh, dementia. And then shortly after that, she was diagnosed with ALS. And, um, I mean, you know, she's my mom and I couldn't handle it. And, and, uh, I slowly started drinking again. And like, it was this time that was like, I mean, I was scared before, but this time was like, Oh my God, I've went through so much. I've put my family through so much and here I am doing this again. And so it was, it was really quick getting back to the drink again. And like, 
um, I, but I told my friends and I told my dad and like everyone knew. And I mean, it was, it was a mess, but like people were trying to help me. I tried to smoke weed to get off, you know, I was doing all these things, but like not, I was in North Carolina at the time. And like, I didn't really have any friends that were familiar with AA. So, um, what I kept detoxing and getting off and drinking again in a few days. And it was just a cycle. I was just, I was battling for my life and I couldn't beat it, which is, you know, for me, I'm like a really competitive guy. And I, I, you know, in tennis, I was known as just like the biggest fighter, like my mind and my the strength that I had in my head was generally enough to overcome anything. And I just, I'd run into an opponent that like, no matter what I did, I couldn't beat it. Um, and then in the middle of that, my grandfather, who's like my hero, he passed, but I, I got some money from him. I inherited some money and I used that to come back to LA, moved in, uh, with my buddy Ravi. Well, I didn't move in. I was staying on his couch and like got there. And yeah, I was like, if I take Adderall, I won't drink, but that didn't work. And I just told him that I had the flu and, uh, he's like, Oh God, I want to stay away from you. And I'm like, great. And I was stealing his booze and just it just got bad enough to where I had a complete collapse, like were to where I was, you know, just drinking more than I could. And it was like, I basically feel like either like subconsciously, I just completely sabotaged myself to where I had nowhere else to run. And I didn't like, I had nowhere else to run. And I, you know, basically I told all my friends in town what was going on and they all rallied and um, man, like Meredith and Ravi like watched me around the clock while I detoxed, which was, we did it medically unsupervised which was not very smart if you are going to detox always get a doctor uh and eventually you know i started going to some aa meetings because we had uh some friends who were in program and they helped me find a rehab so i went to rehab for a month and it was miserable my mom was dying you know and i was kind of like the kid who wasn't helping and my brother stepped up in a big way and, and flew mom up to New York and was taking care of her and got her nurses. And was like, just the, he's just like the hero of this whole story. And I was like the kind (laughs) of the brother who, you know, wasn't helping and was, you know, not only was I not helping, but like everyone was worried about me too. So, um, but I was super desperate. Like I had nothing left. And I was terrified. I was just terrified. I was terrified of like, yeah, I had a little time because I was in rehab. But if I drank again, like, what was that going to mean for my family? And like, I was letting everyone down again. And um, but luckily, like, I just I found some of the right people. Um, My sponsor was this guy named uh, Todd that Ravi knew. And um, and I started going to meetings every day and I, I started working the steps and you know, emotionally it was a mess. Like I was losing my mom and, but, um, you know, it stuck, it stuck. Um, but I will say, and we talked about this earlier is that I, I got sober in February of 2014, but then about, you know, two months later, I was talking with a friend. I was like trying to get my life together and we were hiking and she mentioned that she took this Adderall substitute, uh, called Stratera which is not addictive. It's not habit forming, but like, I was like, I need that. I need that to get my life together. I was so used to leaning on Adderall for like responsible things that I stole some from her and took it and didn't do anything. I think I got sick from it, but like two months in, 
even though it wasn't like an addictive substance, it was like in talking with my sponsor, it was like, well, what was your intent behind it? You know, which is like this kind of really interesting thing. It's like, you know, I, I took something that wasn't a drug, but I took it like an alcoholic. And so, uh, I, we decided together that I was going to take away the time. So that's sort of my relapse that I had. So my sobriety date is April 2nd now. Um, but yeah, so since then, I mean, you know, I, we lost my mom when I was nine months sober. Um, and I was able to be there to hold her hand when she died. And I, you know, to watch her, to lose her and to watch her descend the way she did. She was an Olympic swimmer. She was a world record holder. And, you know, she was like just this vibrant, amazing person. And I know everyone says that about my mom, but my mom was like, she was amazing. Um, She was just like the fun person who was in the center of everything. And to watch that all be taken away from her was just, I mean, it was probably the hardest thing ever, except for maybe getting off alcohol, which they're so married together. That's like, kind of indistinguishable, but getting to be there and being sober to, and holding her hand as she took her last breath is, you know, I, among all the gifts that I've gotten in getting sober, I still think that's the biggest one. Um, since then, I mean, you know, it's life is life and it's can be really hard, but I just, I've gotten to this place in my life now where rather than, you know, I, I was this guy before where I knew everything and I, and like, if the world didn't do what I wanted, like somehow the world was wrong and I could intellectualize why they didn't accept me for this fucking genius that I was. And like, you know, hand me the keys to the kingdom. And now it's like, I live this life where I get beat up all the time. Like bad things happen all the time. Um, you know, my, my body is kind of failing me. I got a bunch of knee surgeries. I broke my hip in December and like, you know, had a, had an engagement breakup and all these different things in life that have been really hard. But in now I, I approach life with more of a sense of humility in the sense that like, if bad things happen, there's always something to learn and there's always something I can do better. And like that mentality and bringing that forward in, in my sobriety and having just the, the members of AA to like support me through everything and give me advice and all this kind of stuff and to remain teachable. I've gotten to the point where like, I don't do everything great. I make mistakes all the time, but I can always learn and do better. Um, and that has, I mean, that's been everything. That's like, you know, um, everything keeps getting better and better. And I've gotten to have all these opportunities. I got, you know, in recovery, I got to, my brother started uh, this nonprofit foundation um, to raise money for ALS and dementia. And that allowed me to run this Ironman to raise money for it. And like, you know, so just in so many different parts of my life, um, just things have gotten better. My career got much better. Uh, my relationships, my family and my friends and just everything across the board has gotten better. And I still make mistakes all the time. But like, I just, man, I just learned from it. And now I'm, I'm in a great place. Like I'm in a place where there's a lot of uncertainty in in my life. I don't kind of know where my career is going. I don't know where I'm going to live. But I've, you know, I'm now 
partnered up with Abby and we're getting married in September. And, and like, life is just, life is just awesome now. Like I'm still terrified all the time. <laughs> like I'm still, you know, I, like I run into obstacles that I can't beat, but now it's like, I have the humility to be like, you know what? I don't know what's going to happen. I'm going to have faith in my higher power that this plan that is put in front of me is going to, is going to work out in the end. And um, I just kind of have to be patient and use the tools that are available to me. And like, everything's going to be cool. Um, and, you know, one thing I, I just want to mention um, kind of to finish off the story is that I feel like, especially as a man in this day and age, like one of the things that I learned is that I'm allowed to be vulnerable and that it's okay. Um, I, you know, I, I grew up in a household where we didn't share our feelings a lot. Um, uh, the Hansons are a very tough crew, like, like physically and mentally, like we're, we're, you know, we, we have this image of very strong men, um, and we all have it. And, you know, so I've really had to learn that like being vulnerable and sharing who I really am and what my fears are and all that kind of stuff is, is not only cool, but it actually makes me stronger than I was before I started doing that. Um, and so learning these things, I just, I'm so grateful at all the bad stuff that happened to me to break me so that I could learn those lessons. Because if I think if I hadn't, I just don't think I would have grown very much. I don't think I'd be the guy I am now. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, I never wanted to be like this, this label of alcoholic or addict. I didn't want any of that. That meant you were weak. It meant you were less than, and now it's like, I'm proud of it. And so, you know, I post my chips online. I break my anonymity because I just want people to know that you can be that way, that you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be the strongest or best, even though I still struggle with that all the time. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm really grateful. Like all the bad stuff that's happened to me always ends up turning into the best thing that ever happened to me. So yeah, that's, that's my story. Wow. Wow. Wait, you are such a gift. Thank you so much. What a story. Um, it's interesting. Uh, I mentioned in the beginning that I had received this phone call that you were in a dire way that alcohol, you were really in the grips of alcoholism. And one thing that I was thinking about as listening to your story is that each time I see a picture of you, I just see this bright light in your eyes and I see the way that you live life on life's terms and it's very powerful. And when I saw you post photos of your mother, I saw that same light in her. So to hear you speak about your mom, it all came full circle and really made sense. It's this gusto for life that you both clearly have and embody. And what a living amends to be able to be with her in the last moments of her life. I'm sure she really felt that and was viscerally aware of your presence. Um, it, do you think about living amends on a regular basis? Um, I do. Um, you know, and as far as my mom goes, I mean, her mental state was so low at the end, but like the one thing I think that she, she could still feel love. Like she knew that, you know, the people that loved her were there. And, um, of course. so that was, you know, um, but no, I do think about living amends because I still, 
You know, what's so funny is that one thing that I crave is like instant redemption for all of my failures. You know, um, I, I still to this day, don't think I've like forgiven myself for just failing in life in certain regards. And so, you know, the living amends part of it is really important to me because like, I do feel like I live my life in a much better way than I did. I feel like I live my life in a much, much better way than I did like three, four years ago, you know, even in sobriety. It's so it's like this slow build of um, taking my failures, kind of repurposing them and being like, these are teachable moments, not just for me, but you know, that I can, I can give those to other people and be of service and really help them out in their lives. And, you know, it's funny because it always sounds like, Oh, what a good person you are. Like you're helping people. And it's like, no, man, like I do these things. Cause it makes me feel better about myself. You know, like if I can help people and I can, and I can, you know, if I can repair some of the damage that I feel like I caused, uh, before, like it, it does, it makes me feel better. It makes me feel more whole. Um, and it makes me happier and more proud of myself, but it takes a long, it's, it's like, I, I suspect I'll be doing it for the rest of my life. I hope so. Um, I, that would be a real gift to yourself and us. I was speaking with a guest that we're going to have on and Erica M and she was mm -hmm. talking about the service, the, how instrumental you have been in her recovery and specifically through this pandemic. So I did want to ask you what your program looks like in this pandemic. You've been traveling and meetings are online these days. And what does that look like for you? And how has the program pivoted to meet your needs or? So uh, the Zoom thing has been incredible. Um, a lot of people don't love it. And I, and I get it because there's not quite the human connection, but like basically at the big, like the first week of the pandemic, I got a knee surgery. My, uh, my engagement fell apart and uh, yeah, and the pandemic hit all at once. And that's a lot. So yeah, it's a lot. It was a lot. And physically, you know, emotionally, uh, everything. It was like this triple threat. And I was like, I was like, and, and what's funny is that like, it mirrored a lot of what brought me in, in the first place, you know what I mean? A relationship that like, you know, it wasn't the exact same, but it was like just feelings of abandonment and all these different things. So I was in a place where I was like, Oh God, this is the way I was tested before. Can I get through it this time? And uh, I ended up uh, a really good friend of mine, Damien introduced me to this one group and like, I didn't know any of these guys. It was men's group online. And like, I led in <laughs> to these people that had never met me with tears and fear and just panic. And like is this, uh, I'll never, I'll never, they just embraced me and they, you know, everyone in this group had been through a bad, bad breakup and like everyone kind of knew, you know, like anyone who had a, an experience similar to mine reached out and made me feel better. And I mean, it didn't save me all at once, but it saved me from drinking. It saved me from, you know, doing anything rash like and um, throughout this whole process, like it was it was incredible. And so what's funny is like I I still to this day, because I'm traveling around the world so much like I. I still go to these meetings, that meeting and sort of a sister meeting to it every single day. And. 
I haven't met almost all of these people and they've become really close friends. I'm going to finally get to meet some of them on Thursday um, because I'm here in LA, but it's, it's uh, the zoom thing has been incredible. Just the convenience of being able to check in every day. It's in some ways it's better than, you know, you live in LA and you got to drive 30 minutes to a meeting and it's like, you know, it's too much. Totally. I have a meeting here in Marin, um, in Northern California that meets every night at six o'clock and it saved my hide. When I was home with three small kids, I'd be making dinner and I just put my AirPods in and I could listen. And for those of you who are listening, one, and if you are sober curious, I think something that's been amazing is that there are open meetings where if you just want to listen in, you could turn off turn off your mic, turn off your video, and just anonymously, truly listen to the format of the meeting. And for those who are not intimately or experienced with Alcoholics Anonymous, there are open meetings and there are closed meetings. And if you look at meeting schedules, they will denote that. And if you're not ready to qualify yourself as an alcoholic, but you want to check it out, come to an open meeting. It's been amazing. And then to your point, I have seen some of the folks it's seven nights a week, this meeting. So I've gotten to know a lot of these individuals really well online. And so I'll see them around town. And (laughs) you nearly chase somebody down in the parking lot like they're a celebrity because you met them in person. So that's been pretty special. Yeah. The ability to connect online and recognize that we can do this in different ways. Yeah. And I think one thing that's, that's helped too, is that, um, you know, I still have one of the problems I have in telling my story. And we talked about this is, is how bad mine was. And I, and sometimes I hate that because I feel like it's like people can rationalize, you know, the drinking part because they're like, well, I'm not as bad as wit was. So maybe, you know, and I, I do love that zoom has made it. So people, I've had friends like kind of just come and check it out and, and it's not for them. And I'm like, great. You know, you know, so it does make things a lot easier. Um, I, I kind of re- the more I do this, the more I worry that it doesn't, you don't have to get overly bad to make a change in your life. You know, we, we make it very black or white sometimes, but man, it, I don't think it has to be that way. Sure. You mentioned fear earlier and I just wonder, mm. do you have a favorite acronym for fear? I do not. Okay. I do not. Okay. That'll I be just an feel easy like one. some of us, get slow, some of us get slogan happy and I just thought no, I'd put that there. no. No, it's funny, actually, in some Fuck ways. Fuck everything and, and run, face everything yeah, and recover. I, I, you know what? I, I love, I actually do totally use a lot of the the sort of axioms in AA, but I also have this thing where um, I always want, I always really try and say things in their own way rather than regurgitating stuff too, just because like, uh Oh God, I feel like I sound so judgmental in saying that because I do use the other ones as well. But it's like a lot of times I feel like if you can say everything in your own words in the same way, uh, then it kind of shows more understanding too. But in saying that, I feel super judgmental of the people that use this stuff. And I recognize how useful that is for newcomers to hear something and it's like hits this tuning fork and they're like, yeah, this is great. But I tend not to, to yeah, use it. Yeah, you don't have to much. hang your hat on slogans. That's just, no. <laughs> that's just fine. No. So, Tell us a little bit about your travels. Where are you going? Okay. (laughs) Well, this is what's great. What's great is you're catching me in a moment where like we have these plans and like everything is a mess right now. So I, when the pandemic hit, I moved down to Mexico and I met 
Abby, who is now my fiance and, you know, we are going to get married in September. Um, but we, after living in Mexico for a while, we really got to know each other and, and like the partnership was looking pretty great. We decided to move to the Azores, which are these, this Island archipelago and the middle of the Atlantic ocean is part of Portugal. Um, and we, and we just went like, we didn't know anybody there and we didn't know much about it. And we took my dog goose with, and we went and we fell in love with it. And the, the idea was we were going to go to all these different places in Europe for three months at a time, but it didn't work out that way. And, uh, because we all these visa issues we didn't know about. So we went to Cyprus for three months and then we're like, okay, let's, we love Azores. Let's go, let's go there. Let's at least live there for a while and see how it works out. So that's what we're trying to do now, but we're in the middle of trying to get this D seven like residence visa. And, um, uh, there's just, I mean, it's just so much red tape. So but we're that's sitting just and amazing. trying to get that It's done. just another way to highlight, like we are not a glum lot and you can take your program wherever you go. And, oh, yeah. you know, to the point of the title of this podcast, you know, wherever you go, there you are. I, for better, or for worse. I mean, I think about the geographics that I did in my active mm -hmm. using, but then it's so fun just to think like, the world is your oyster, you know, you can, you can take yourself spiritually fit anywhere you want and bring yeah. this program, this recovery with you. Well, what I think is really cool about this in particular is that, and, and this is really something that I find a lot of comfort in is that my, my ability to travel is created because of trauma. You know what I mean? Like because of a, a relationship that broke up, because I had to leave and basically get rid of all my possessions, I became freer to move around the world, you know? So it's like, if you're in the middle of something terrible, like there is still hope in that there's, you know what I mean? That can always be transitioned into something beautiful. Um, my, my mom's death, like, you know, I brought me closer to my brother. We did all these cool things together. I got to do Iron Man. Like there's all these things that have happened in my life that are quote unquote terrible, you know, but they can transition into something. They can clear out space for something even better in your life. And so I think that's, what's pretty cool about it. The pandemic has allowed me to do this, this horrible thing that we're going through is, you know, has, has, has changed my life in a way. I mean, the pandemic in some way has been one of the best things that's ever happened to me. Sure. Uh, and then also a part of your story that I thought was really important. And when I came in, when I got sober, there was still this pretty rigid understanding that we talked about alcohol in our program and addictions to other drugs were for other programs. And I think that that has changed a lot, a lot in the last few years, which I really appreciate a lot of us led in to this disease with other addictions. And I too was prescribed and abused Adderall at a really, I don't know about a really young age, but I picked it up my freshman year of college and it was a very hard addiction mentally and physically for me to let go of. So I could really appreciate, I almost sometimes still get racy when I think about that hyper-focus, that tunnel vision, mm -hmm. the I can almost feel my heart racing when I think about Adderall and, um, but I really appreciate your mentioning that because I think that there's so much crossover between pills and booze 
especially right now. Oh, yeah. Oh, I mean, not just that, just, you know, gambling, food, you know, uh, relationships, love, all that kind of stuff. I mean, I think what has become more clear to me over time is that, like, I don't do I don't do a recovery program to get off to stay away from drugs and alcohol. Like, I mean, if my life gets bad enough, I'm sure that will be the end result. But like all of those things are basically just some sort of like opiate in one way or another to help you deal with feelings you don't want to deal with, you know? And so that's what I work on now. And that, and like all my fears and all those things have manifested for sure with food and women and, you know, all these different things, even, you know, social media, all these things are addictive, but they're all a result of me trying to put something in between me and my fear, you know? And um, so, yeah, like uh, to me, it's just a, it's a state of being human, you know? Um, and yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to mention, I was on the phone with my brother this morning and he was reminding me that it says in the book, you know, above all else, self-centeredness and selfishness is our problem. And I loved how, yes, we can fill the hole in our donut with all these things, with all these addictions and all these ways that really dysregulate us um, and separate us, this way of disconnecting. But you are so solution oriented and you kind and you keep it so simple, like in the service that you do and the way that you give back and you connect with others. It sounds like you're very cognizant that connection and service is the solution in for you. Is that I think fair? Yeah, I, I think so. I think I think that's just how humans are supposed to live is by connecting as much as possible. And I think one thing Dude, that I would I live found- on a commune if I could. I think, well, that's what, you know, I mean, I wasn't there, but I'm assuming, you know, 50,000 years ago, everyone was in a village and everyone was looking out for each other. And, you know, like, um, you know, for me, one thing too, that I think has been really a great thing to connect. And, you know, when I mentioned that, that meeting I joined earlier is when you lead with your flaws and your vulnerability, like that is the best way to connect because I used to be this guy who was like, I'm so great. Look at me. You know, like I tried to portray this perfect person who knew what he was doing. And like, none of that was true. None of it was true at all. And so like, I just, I just feel like having a space where you can be imperfect and like, and that's okay. Cause we're all like that. I think it's like this great lie of society that like, you know, that we put this presence out on social media that we're all doing. Okay. When the truth is you talk to enough people, everyone's a mess. Everyone's got something going on. And like the more we can normalize that is great because it's like, oh, you're going through this, you know, oh, that person looks so perfect, but we know that there's, you know, there's always something else going on. It makes, it makes you able to like forgive people if they piss you off, you know, there's always something going on. Um, We've all got it. And so the more we can kind of know that about each other, I think the better the world will be. Well, Whit, thank you so much for being here with us. This was really a treat this morning. Yeah, Um, it's fun. Yeah. My favorite question, um, do you have a favorite non-alcoholic beverage? What's your treat? You can go Um, caffeinated or not caffeinated. No, no. Uh, God, I I mean, I I wish it was super interesting. I literally Oh, no, no. Keep it simple. I literally used to be addicted to Pamplemousse LaCroix, but now I'm, uh, I think that's probably my answer. (laughs) I think we've all OD'd on Pamplemousse LaCroix at some point. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, there you go. 
I'm into this new drink called Cherry Boondi. Maybe I'll send you some. <laughs> oh, great. I'll make, that, yeah, I'll make them the sponsor of our next podcast. I'm yeah, really into good. tart cherry juice mixed with seltzer, a little squeeze of lime. It's a wonderful après day drink. Sounds amazing. Yeah. Um, well, Wit, thank you so, so much. I, um, I really appreciate you being here and your story is such a gift. I truly believe that you will save others in them hearing your story, your experience, strength and hope. And I just want to leave and impart to you what a miracle I, I really believe you are. And I'm just very proud of your sobriety and congratulations for it. Thank you. It's great. Great talking to you. It's been a lot of fun. You too. Thanks, Whit. Thanks so much for listening today. I hope you were able to identify with feelings, if not facts, and you come away feeling a bit more a part of. If you liked what you heard, please like, follow, and subscribe. I'm very passionate about educating our communities on the language of recovery. Help us spread the mission by sharing with friends and family. If you would like to join us for a conversation on the world of addiction and recovery, please DM us or shoot me an email at vw.vanessawellstead.com. Remember, it's a we game, not a me game. <laughs>